Hello, I'm Scott Sasha. And I'm Evan Novi Williams, and you're listening to the Sportacast. gone back to the old regular. I thought you were going to say the teenage edition of the Sportacast, <laughs> the lawsuit edition of the Sportacast. The soccer phenom version. The soccer phenom version, the Freddie Adu version of the Sportacast, because we have Olivia Moultrie, 15 years old, filing a lawsuit against the National Women's Soccer League because of an age restriction that she cannot play in the league right now. And we have seen these sorts of lawsuits in other leagues. The difference being to me, Mr. Novi Williams, is that those age restrictions are collectively bargained with the players union. And that is not the case in the NWSL. So take it away from there. Yeah, you're right. We, we've seen challenges to age restrictions in the NBA before, in the NFL before, Maurice Claret, the Ohio State running back. Um, but you're right. One of the big differences here is that there is no players union, at least not yet for the NWSL in terms of a collective bargaining agreement. They're working on one, apparently. There could very well be one soon, and and this lawsuit may change pretty significantly depending on what those two sides agree on in terms of age restrictions. Uh, But at least for right now, as you said, there's no collective bargaining agreement between NWSL players and the league. And as a result, Olivia Moultrie, 15 years old, is arguing that the fact that she's not allowed to play in the league uh, is a violation of antitrust laws. Uh, and just to kind of lay out where she is right now, she's she's a soccer phenom. She's been a uh, an up-and-comer for years. I think Nike signed her when she was 12 or 13. Uh, she's allowed to play in... Yeah, she has a marketing dial with Nike. Yeah, she's allowed to play in the NWSL from a development league standpoint. So she's playing on the field with a lot of these professional women. It certainly seems like she's good enough, at least from what the lawsuit uh, lays out. She has, I believe, a, a scholarship offer to go to UNC. She can play in college. If she was... Uh, living overseas, she would be allowed to play in most professional women's leagues overseas. But the way the U.S. league is laid out, she's not allowed to play right now, and she's essentially suing to to, to try to get that changed. Well, a couple of things. If she was male, she would be allowed to play in MLS. And not only does she have a scholarship offer at North Carolina, and I'm always skeptical of, of these things, but do you know when she accepted the scholarship offer? Oh, gosh. When she <laughs> was like... Age- <laughs> 11. Oh, wow. When she was 11. <laughs> so, I mean, she probably, like Mia Hamm was a star there. You know, how many years ago? Um, so maybe, the, you know, the next Mia Hamm, the next Alex Morgan, but accepted a scholarship to Carolina at 11. Like you said, as a marketing deal with, with Nike, trains with the, the Portland Thorns, um, but can only play with the youth teams, like all, all those things you said. Um, you wonder, she alleges that there's damage being done to her brand, to her ability to earn money. Obviously, if she can't play on the pro team, the top team, she's not going to make as much sure, but that her endorsements aren't worth as much because she's not playing at the high level, that it's hurting her chances of making the U.S. women's national team. And that is where the true exposure comes. If, if you're a female soccer player and you can make it to the best club in the world alongside those iconic brand name players, clearly there will be opportunities that will come your way. So that's the business part of this. She's saying sort of the business part of Olivia Moultrie, the the Moultrie Inc., if you will, is being irreparably damaged because she is not allowed to, to ply her trade at the highest level in the NWSL. 
Yeah, and I think that that hits on exactly the thing. You know, one of the ways that this is very different from, let's say, a, a high school senior basketball player who can't jump to the NBA quite yet. That kid, that guy can go and play in Europe. He can get paid a lot of money. She doesn't have that option because of FIFA rules. She can't go over and play in Europe. So even if there were teams like the Manchester City women's team or the Arsenal women's team that wanted to pay her a lot of money to play over there, she's not she's not allowed to do that. So she is in some ways a lot more restricted than you might see for a high school basketball player who's upset that he has to wait a year before jumping into the NBA. And as you know, Scott, the, the relationship between U.S. soccer and the NWSL, which changed a bit in the past year, but there's a tight business relationship there. Uh, there's no question that the you know the, the the not being able to play with those women, not being able both for herself, I think, and also to prove where she is right now. I think it's hard for her to prove that she should be on the national team in some ways if she's not consistently playing against the, the, those same people uh, day in and day out. So yes, I, that's the thing that interests me the most as well. It's just the, the argument here that, that the, that her future earnings, there's, there's a big financial penalty here for her, not just in the salary, but in the ability to rise and, and all the other riches that come with it. Two thoughts. One, I wish I'd seen her play. I, I've never seen her play, and I'd like to see her play against the top competition to to see really just how good she is. And two, I don't think you can discount uh, the time we are in as to perhaps why this is happening and the fact that there's a, a, a monetary spotlight on elite female athletes right now. And if you can, at a, at a young age, at the age of 15, cut through the clutter and become a brand name and face, I think she's exactly right. There will be a bevy of corporate opportunities for her to serve as uh, face, name, and and uh, just the, the entire campaign uh, of products out there. I, I think she's got a great opportunity, but people need to know who she is and they need to see her play. And I would think I'm a little bit closer to that than your average fan, just sports fan, and I have not seen her play. So that would be a problem for her, yes. Freddie Adu was 14 when he made his MLS debut. With that so much hype, by the way. That yeah. will never cease to shock. I'm sure, I mean, you have a son who's a couple years away from that age, who in his own right is a pretty fantastic athlete. The idea of a 14-year-old uh, playing in the top professional league in any sport is uh, is fairly mind-blowing to me. Uh, I'm always a little freaked out. It's like there's a, there's a website called Elite Prospects, right? And I have nothing to do with this. I, I didn't sign up for it. I didn't anything. Just one day my son appeared on it. It, it, it <laughs> just strikes me as so bizarre a world, you know, at age 10, you know, that this, this happens and that the, the prep schools are show interest at the kids at such a young age and the, the recruiting that begins. It is, I mean, people have heard all the wild tales about youth sports, but they are all, they are all true. There, it's really quite a world. Uh, almost like the SPAC world, quite a world. <laughs> right? Good transition. Thank I tried. I didn't think it was the greatest, but but we did it. But you and I, we, we were laughing that the the folks on Twitter and some email people have been reaching out every time we write something about uh, a SPAC. People have been clamoring for an update on what about Horizon Two and Sport Radar. No, they announced the deal a while ago. What's going on there? It hasn't closed. What's going on? Well, we're here to tell you that uh, while we don't necessarily take requests for story ideas, it is something you and I were poking around on, and we answered some questions. So go ahead. Yeah, so it's taking a little while. Things are still on track, according to our reporting. The two pieces of news that we were able to pull together 
one, the exclusive window negotiating window between sport radar and horizon acquisition corp two, uh, has been extended. So they're still in that exclusivity period where, where they're really only talking to each other. The second thing is that they're trying to raise money, which we had reported prior. They're trying to raise money privately before the deal gets closed. Uh, they are in the stage now called crossing the wall for folks who like jargon. Uh, they're in the stage now where they are now sharing confidential financial information with prospective investors. That is one of the later stages of having people decide if they're in or out on uh, on giving money to uh, to invest in sport radar. So the easy answer, Scott, is things are at least on track. The people that, that you and I have spoken to have been, I think, fairly optimistic that things are still going to get done. Um, but you can't hide the fact that sometimes these things take two weeks from letter of intent to, to deal being done. And we're now, you know, almost eight weeks away and, and we're still not at that point. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, loyal listener Steve Horowitz, is this about the point where he says, I'm going to text... Eben and Scott, uh, you know, talking about this story. I, I just want to see if if we get the message from good old Steve Horowitz. Hey, Steve, how are you? Um, making it interesting, by the way, if people aren't aware, who is behind Horizon? That's Todd Bowley, part owner of the Dodgers. Um, so, uh, what was the money they paid for? What they valued the company like ten billion, right? Ten billion, like $10 billion was dollar valuation. Yeah. So, if it's done, this is going to be one of the bigger SPACs in general, and certainly one of the sports-related SPACs. You know, the biggest out there. Um, so uh, they're also looking for some private money, like you said, you know, looking to see pipe and the, we, we, we have heard also that sort of the market for pipes has been more difficult than months earlier. So we'll see where it goes, but, uh, everything we can glean is that, uh, both parties seem to feel as if they, they can make a deal happen. Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing just to take a step back and talk more broadly about SPACs writ large, Two months ago, three months ago, there were new SPACs coming literally every day with some of the biggest names in the investing community. It's pretty much all ground to a halt now. One, the SEC has issued guidance on accounting practices that has pretty much stopped the flow of new pre-IPO SPACs. And then two, what you just mentioned, the private investment in public in public equity, uh, which is a, a pipe is the acronym, and I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but essentially the, the vehicle by which you, you raise money- You are jargon money, boy today. I love it. <laughs> the vehicle by which you raise money on, essentially on the side before a company goes public, that it's, it's a part of SPAC deals often. There are a lot of institutional investors now that are holding off on participating in, in those money raises. They feel as though they don't want to get locked in immediately with a company where they can't necessarily sell their shares. There's a long holding period. They might not be able to sell their shares immediately if they want to. I think two or three months ago, there were a lot of hedge funds out there that were willing to take part in this early investment round before the company goes goes public. Now it seems like a lot of hedge funds are saying, why do I have to do this now? I can wait until the thing is public. I can buy shares then, maybe at the same price. Maybe I'll have less of a, of a lockup restriction. Uh, so it certainly feels like both in the pre-IPO SPAC world and also in the trying to find targets and getting deals done SPAC world, we're seeing a pretty uh, a total freezing of the market in some ways. Yeah, we, we should probably mention if folks aren't familiar with Sport Radar, a big data company heavily involved in global sports betting, part owned by the NFL, uh, Equity stakeholders include Michael Jordan, Mark Cuban, Ted Leonsis, so familiar names to U.S. sports fans. Evan, you said you wanted to talk about NFTs and crypto, you know, because you got you got a piece coming. It's not out yet, but you have a piece coming on NFTs and crypto, and you said that there's a pretty cool element to it. So go ahead, lay it on me. What's pretty cool about this? Yeah, it's, it's a part of the NFT conversation that I actually haven't seen discussed all that much. As everyone knows, or a lot of our listeners will know, 
non-fungible tokens, the talk of the sports world right now. Everybody is rushing in. The NBA news we reported, Scott, has a blockchain committee to try to figure out all the different ways they can use blockchain in addition to, to just the NFTs. One aspect of, of, of NFT sales is that when you do them, all of your sales happen in cryptocurrency. And as a result, these athletes, these sports teams, these media companies, these leagues, when they're done with their NFT drop, they're facing a tough decision. Do you hold on to the cryptocurrency you have or do you convert it into U.S. dollars? Uh, and it's becoming, you know, there, there's people on both sides of the line. The story touches on Rob Gronkowski, who did a drop in early March, grossed about $1.8 million in Ether. It's not in U.S. dollars, but in Ether. Ether has essentially doubled in the past two months. So Rob Gronkowski's, the, the money he's made from that sale, because he's kept it in Ether, which he has, has gone up significantly. On the other side of the coin, there's there's teams like the Golden State Warriors, who did their NFT drop last weekend. They sold 327 uh, NFTs. And after each one, their partner, Medium Rare, had to scramble to turn the Ether into US dollars as soon as possible so that it was not in Ether for very long. And, and the Golden State Warriors essentially said, we thought about this for a while. We don't want to hold cryptocurrency. We want to hold US dollars. So it's a mix of, one, how much you maybe believe in cryptocurrency, two, what your risk tolerance is like, because let's face it, cryptocurrencies are a lot more volatile than the US dollar. And then three, kind of thinking about the accounting and the tax implications. But it's just a part of the NFT conversation I haven't seen that much, Scott, which is that everybody who does these then faces a decision about, do I want cryptocurrency on my balance sheet or do I just want to turn this into dollars? All right. Now, this is the entire time, again, you're talking. I'm supposed to be paying attention to you, but (laughs) because this is like the most honest podcast you'll ever get, as soon as you said something about the Warriors my mind started to go in like in a separate direction. I'm wondering like any other listeners out there wondering, say, hey, so the Warriors took their stake medium rare? Like anybody <laughs> else think that? <laughs> As you, uh, yeah, that yeah, sound yeah. was your forehead hitting. <laughs> but that's what was going through my head. So I'm like, do I make the joke? Do I bring it up? Did anybody else get that? Do they, do they think about it the way I was thinking about it? And then think about I'm kind of hungry, want a steak? I, I did. <laughs> that's that's the way it went. Um, but and as you know, you? Scott, there are there are teams out there, and and the Dallas Mavericks, and and Mark Cuban, and Vivek Ranadive, and the Sacramento Kings. There are baseball teams. A lot of teams out there are, are doing transactions now in cryptocurrency. The, the Golden State Warriors are not are not one of them. Um, but almost everybody I talked to for this story mentioned Elon Musk. As a lot of people know, Tesla changed its investing rules. They just put $1.5 billion into Bitcoin. It's now sitting on the balance sheet as an investment. Uh, And I think that's going to start to normalize a lot in the business world. I don't think it's going to be that uncommon moving forward for publicly traded companies uh, to be public about the fact that, hey, yeah, we're in addition to holding this real estate or this much gold or or, or this much in stock, et cetera, we're also going to be holding on to Ether and Bitcoin. Yeah, absolutely. You saw the Oakland A's, but they had their first transaction in Bitcoin, right? A couple of seats in, in Dogecoin, I think. Which um, is an yeah, even, I feel terrible. Even if more I, speculative. It was a Doge. Well, I would feel yeah. terrible if I if I spent like I bought a couple of pizzas with Bitcoin, and then all of a sudden it's worth what it's worth. Like, oh my God, how, what, did I just really waste that much money or what I could have had? Yeah, terrible. But uh, let's take a look at the Knicks and the Rangers speaking about money because we don't get a lot of glimpses inside of the balance sheets of professional sports teams. We get the occasional peek. And when MSG Sports uh, has its earnings, we do get that peak. The numbers right now, and this is not a surprise, but we just like to talk about it because we do have that look. Revenue declined almost $85 million for the Knicks and Rangers in the third quarter. Obviously, no tickets or very few tickets, very few merch. Um, 
it's uh, MSG Sports. They took in what 183 million in the first quarter. That's down from 270 or 267 million in 2020, which was the last one before COVID. So you can see this significant 85 million dollar difference. Uh, the difference there at MSG in merch, concessions, ticket sales. Yeah, it's this is the the three month period January, February, and March. So it probably just caught the beginning of the pandemic shutdown from 2020, and then 2021. Obviously, a very different landscape. You said it isn't surprising. Not surprising they lost money, Scott. I'm a little surprised that this isn't a, a bigger number in terms of the percentages there. As you said, they went from 267 million uh, in in that 2020 quarter to 183 million in in the 2021 quarter really shows how important the media money is there, right? The When fans aren't in the building, you're not selling tickets, you're not selling merch, you're not selling a lot of uh, apparel, you're not selling concessions. The one thing you're still doing is getting your media check. And and the media money even went up from, from 2020 to 2021. Uh, the loss actually would have been significantly bigger, I think, if not for the, the media rights increases. So it really shows that you can essentially go to having zero fans and you're, it doesn't disappear. Yeah, your media money went up. Yes, almost twenty-three million, and like they have the deal with the MSG Networks, of course, separately publicly traded company. But you also got a break when you didn't have to pay things like luxury tax and revenue sharing was saved mm-hmm. on Nixon Rangers. So you, you, you caught a break there, and maybe people don't think about that when this is going on. Like, what are the breaks are we getting? Because the teams, the teams, the, the big market, big revenue teams, they, they actually wind up losing more money. You, that's what we're that's what we're seeing. So they get a break and didn't have to give give much away. So uh, also there, but the Rangers or MSG, they made news also off the ice the other day. So the, I'll set it up quickly and you can say what happened. Uh, the Rangers and the Capitals had a hockey game. Tom Wilson, no stranger to the NHL's disciplinary actions. Um, two things on the ice. Like he, he punched Miko Zibanejad when he was down on the ice. But I think the one that really took people uh, aback was when when he looked like he pulled the hair of Artemi Panarin and like he went down hard and turned out Panarin got some lower body injury and all in all it looked pretty bad but then again I I just want to I preface with by the way this is still the league that can that just gives fighting a five-minute penalty where it's allowed and you know hits to the head are commonplace and hits from behind I'm always amazed at, at that these guys get up every game and play every other day every third day it's unbelievable um, but Tom Wilson was fined $5,000, a whooping $5,000. And in a very, very rare move, the Rangers put out a statement. You want to read it? You want me to read it? You go ahead. Cause I don't have it, but it is, okay. uh, you're right. Here's it is the, not commonplace this, in, this in was, hockey this, to have statements this, like Well, this. I mean, to put out a statement is one thing, but this is what part of what the statement said, quote, we view this as a dereliction of duty by NHL head of player safety, George Paros, and believe he is unfit to continue in his current role. They said he should be fired. That is a team saying an NHL executive, former player George Paros, who, by the way, racked up a pretty good amount of penalty minutes in his day. I mean, he wasn't Tiger Williams. Princetonian as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, oh, is he really? Yeah. I I didn't know that. That's interesting. Um, he, He racked up a few penalty minutes of his own but they said he's unfit for the job. That's you don't see that every day. I am I am surprised that statement went out. Yeah, and to add a coda to this, Scott, breaking news. Essentially, the the, the minute that we started recording this, uh, the Rangers fired their general manager Jeff Gordon and their president John Davidson. Um, the Rangers, it looks like, are not going to make the playoffs this year. 
kind of hard to argue that the team isn't trending at least in the right direction. The reaction on Twitter so far in the last 30, 40 minutes has been kind of outrage from a, from a lot of Rangers fans. I'm sure there will be questions about whether uh, the relieving of these two executives has anything to do with the fact that yesterday uh, the team called for an NHL employee to be fired uh, for dereliction of duty. Going back to that five, $5,000, which a lot of people are kind of up in arms that, that, that that's the only punishment that was given to Tom Wilson. I believe that's the maximum allowable uh, in the in the CBA right now, that's the most that the league can find CBA, a yeah. player uh, without you know essentially input from from the NHLPA. One thing you and I always talk about, and I'm curious if you see the same thing here. I often wonder why, oftentimes, commissioners when they think they're in the right, don't hand down a much bigger fine and force the players association to essentially defend the actions of the person who did the thing. Um, and I know that would cause probably a, a pretty big legal and, 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 and maybe arbitration battle in, in some ways. Um, but I do wonder if the NHL had come out and been a lot more forceful with Tom Wilson and essentially told the NHL PA, okay, uh, now it's your turn to, to get this thing negotiated down by defending his actions. I wonder how differently this might've played out. Yeah. We talked about that when the NFL went through its Ray Rice affair. Like, I don't care what the CBA says, just let Roger Goodell say you're suspended for the rest of the year. And you know, you want to appeal it, the uh, NFL Play- players association, go ahead. That, that's your prerogative, but I don't care about what we bargained. This was outside of the scope of what I could even think about or imagine. So forget it. You're, you know, he's gone for the year and see what happens. Yeah. We, we, we've talked about it. I'm torn of course, Evan, because as you know, growing up on long Island, uh, 10 years old when the Islanders won their first Stanley cup. So if I had at one time a rooting allegiance to a professional sports team, it would have been Potvin, um, Gillies, Nystrom, Goring, uh, Bossy. So that, that, that would have been it. I don't mean to leave out Trottier. Uh, Bill Smith, my, my son wears number 31 because of Bill Smith. He thinks it's because of Carey Price, but really I, I encourage 31 for Billy Smith. Uh, thankful he's got his temper as well. Uh, yay, yay. Um, but also my son plays now for the Junior Rangers. So, you know, a, a lifelong Islanders fan having to see his kid wearing the Ranger emblem and colors, that's difficult. Um, so I do have some, some affiliation here with the Rangers. But I'll, I'll tell you, I have not had a lot of interactions with Tom Wilson. But there was one time when I was in the locker room and my son happened to be there as well. Um, but I think after a practice at, uh, at the Prudential Center. And like the first guy... Who came over and they were everybody was gracious. Holtby was great. Ovechkin was nice. Uh, TJ Oshie was super nice. John Carlson was super nice. Um, but the first person to come in and engage with the kids was Tom Wilson, like towering over them in his skates. Um, but like there, there is this other personality on the ice where he, boy, he, he just, like we said, he has. A, a litany of touch points with the NHL's disciplinary um, program. And uh, I, yeah, I don't think we're done hearing about this one yet. No, not at all. And, and, and you mentioned and, and, and hinted at it right there, his history here. This is a player that has now repeatedly been fined for acts that are in, endangering his colleagues uh, in different ways. Uh, and that is from, from the people who are upset about the, the minimum and the lack of punishment on this one. One of the biggest arguments, and maybe the one that, that resonates the most with me, is that eventually the reputation of the player involved has to come into play here. 
And 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 if you are again con- consistently being fined for doing things on the ice that are a danger to your teammates and 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 your fellow colleagues, um, maybe it's time for something a little bit more strict. Did the Princeton lightweight football team have an enforcer, a kind of a lead with the helmet kind of guy? Was that you? It's hard to have an enforcer when everybody weighs the same thing, right? If everybody was Tom Wilson size on the NH- in the NHL, he might act a little differently. Um, but it's yeah, it's in, in the lightweight football world, you're, you're taller or shorter, so you're skinnier or thicker. But everybody is packing the same weight. It's exactly 172. All right. Do, do I post the picture of you know T. Wilson and the boys? Do do I do I post the picture? Well, maybe we'll have a Twitter. Go ahead. People need to see that picture. All right. He is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on the Twitter at Soshnick. Core Veltman makes me say you can find the show at Sportacast, which is the center of what will become the Sportico Podcast Network. <laughs>